There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, it's me, Kaya, Diara, and Sam, as usual. We talk about the news that you don't know that happened in the past week. Then we have a quick check-in from Netta, uh, talking about what's going on with the protests. And then I sit down with Kimberly Motley, who's a human rights attorney and activist from Wisconsin, to discuss police violence. Now, since we recorded this, Kimberly now represents the survivor who was shot by the white supremacist teenager in Kenosha. And she represents a host of protesters as well in Kenosha and in Wauwatosa. Excited to have her here. I learned so much in this conversation. My advice for this week is to get a change of scenery. Sometimes a change of scenery is a physical. It is a trip. It is going to somebody else's house. And sometimes a change of scenery is a mindset. Uh, one of the reasons why I love fiction so much is that it literally just puts me in a different world. One of the reasons why people get so absorbed in TV shows is like it's a different world. Uh, in the past week, I traveled to see uh, some friends and you know, socially distanced and, and did it right. And that was a great change of scenery. But also, I've been trying to read some more fiction. And like, I just forgot the beauty of being lost in another world in a book. So if you can, think about a change of scenery. Let's go. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Kaya Henderson, at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. And I'm Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. This is Dere at DIY on Twitter. So obviously, uh, the only thing to talk about is the loss of uh, the one and only Chadwick Boseman, uh, who we all know from Black Panther, uh, but also from the range of other movies that he he was in while we now know he was fighting uh, cancer. And the last time that I was with Chadwick, we were at a big party. And um, I'll never forget, he was so gracious and so kind. And the movie had just come out. There was somebody from Google. There was like a high-ranking person from Google. And I remember the meeting. And the first thing this guy says to Chadwick, he's like, it's so great to meet you. I haven't had a chance to see the movie yet. And you're like, why? That's weird. And Chadwick just looks at him and he goes, it's a lot of things going on in the world. Thank you for thinking about the movie. It was just so sweet. He's just such a kind guy, you know? Um, And uh, such a loss. He's so young, so young. I'm happy that we're recording on Sunday night. ABC showing uh, Black Panther uh, for free so people can see it. And I think that Disney Plus has it for free uh, as well. Uh, but such an incredible loss. Yeah, I mean, it was um, so unexpected, you know, just to you know, open up the news uh, and see you know, Chadwick Boseman, um, so young, as you said, DeRay, so unexpected. And so, you know, 2020 has been relentless. It has been uh, so many people have have died in 2020 have from coronavirus, what's going on politically. Black Panther is just one of many examples of Chadwick Boseman, but I think this was only two years ago. We sort of think that it sort of seems a lifetime ago. It seems a really long time ago, just 2018, but Black Panther was so iconic, so huge sort of for the culture, for Black people in the United States and, and all across 
the world. So, I mean, you will be, be missed. And, you know, again, I'm ready for 2021. I'm like ready for to get out of this year. It has been really tough for, for so many people. And, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can just get past 2020 and turn the curve. This Chadwick Boseman news has really just been a kick in the stomach. Um, I think before, if you had said, Kai, are you a Chadwick Boseman fan? I would have said, not exactly. I mean, I think he's cool and I like his work. I think what I've come to realize as I've cried all weekend is that um, he's had a much more significant impact on me, both in life and death, than I originally thought. I mean, Chadwick Boseman was one of the good guys. He took on really important roles representing us and our people and our community. He, um, in every interview, I went down a rabbit hole this weekend just watching interview after interview. I saw him on Jimmy Fallon and Willie Geist, and I saw him just doing a bunch of television things. And in every interview, he was kind. He was gracious. He held a standard of excellence. He just represented us so well. In fact, one clip that I watched, he was talking about being offered a number of stereotypical roles, and he thought, Sure, I'd love to work with that director. Or I'd love to work on this film, but I'd like to do it if there was a different role um, because he was choosy about how he wanted to use his gift. And I think this death is affecting us all across lots of different communities, not just the African-American community, but across the Marvel community and across kid communities and across like just the universal human family. Um, I've watched photos of kids arranging their Avengers to have a funeral for Black Panther and, you know, seeing all of the kids in their Black Panther costumes has been really, really um, amazing. And I got a puppy last week and I named her Shuri. And uh, now that feels even more important to me because it is commemorating not just a film and not just a character, but I feel like it connects to Chadwick's legacy. Sam, I'm with you. I'm ready for 2020 to get out of here. You know, the other thing is that it brought up a conversation about colon cancer. So uh, Chadwick died from colon cancer. It's a reminder that colon cancer is the second leading cause of cancer deaths in the United States, and rates are rising among young people. And what was interesting is, you know, one of the conversations that I saw happening that I didn't even know about was a conversation about when do you get screened for colon cancer? So everybody's recommended to get screened at 45, but as we see, there are a lot of people who die before 45. So what happens when the screening isn't even offered or suggested as a recommend? And if you don't know that your family had a history of it, if you, you know, I think about my family, I know some people who aren't too far removed from my life who we don't really know how they died. Like there wasn't like a, you know, I think about one of my aunts who passed away. It's like, we never got a good medical examination about why that happened, right? So like... This, I think, has renewed a conversation about, like, how do you prepare for some of these things, given that younger people are dying uh, of colon cancer in ways that screening for 45 might be too late. And as you can imagine, racial disparities do show up. They quote an expert in saying that African-Americans are 40 percent more likely to die from colorectal cancer. And it's because of later stage diagnosis. It's because of systemic racism and all that this population has been dealing with. For hundreds of years. So uh, Chadwick's death reminds us about the disparities in the health system, about the need to make sure the health system actually responds to those disparities by changing things like recommendations, testing opportunities, and the like. 
My news this week is about Representative Val Deming's appearance on AM Joy on MSNBC with Zerlina Maxwell. Representative Demings was talking a lot about police, and she, on the one hand, talked about something that I think is really important, and that is when you are creating solutions, co-creating solutions with the people who are most affected by the problem is often important. She talked a lot about not talking about police, but starting to talk to police uh, to to explore what's going on in our streets, uh, to talk about the department's need to reflect the diversity of the community that we serve, to talk about hiring standards, and she talked a lot about training standards. Um, She, in fact, mentioned that in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, uh, which was introduced in the House, that it includes a requirement for national minimum standards for training for police officers. And she went on to explain that there are 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the United States. They range in size from departments of 10 people to departments of 36,000 people. And because each state sets their own standards and and each locality sets its own budget, there are wide disparities in terms of how much training is required, how much training happens uh, with the police. In fact, when I looked into police training, which I know has been talked about on the pod before, and so I'm new to the party, um, I found some interesting statistics from the Institute for Criminal Justice Training Reform, uh, where they effectively share that there are three main issues with police training in the United States. One is that in many places there is no training required, uh, and I'll talk about that with a little more specificity in a second. The second is that there's not enough training, and the third is that it's the wrong training. And so um, when you think about no training, in fact, there are 37 states that allow new officers to begin work without basic training, in some cases for up to two years. In Hawaii, training is never actually required for uh, new officers, and in other places you can defer training from anywhere from six to 24 months. In fact, uh, even when there is basic training, the Institute for Criminal Justice Training Reform um, asserts that there is not enough training. In fact, on average, most police officers receive less than six months of basic training. And this is actually important to note relative to the rest of the world because the United States has the lowest police training requirements in the world with the exception of Iraq and Afghanistan. And finally, um, they assert that lots of times our officers receive the wrong training. They receive a lot of training in firearms deployment and tactical issues and not enough in de-escalation and resolution of actual crimes, right? In fact, crimes don't get resolved at the rate that they should. And so it was interesting that Val Demings decided to take on this training thing and to assert it into the conversation that we're currently having about reimagining policing. We'll see if it will be helpful or if it won't. Um, But I think it's interesting that she's championing this as part of the conversation. So, you know, this is really interesting uh, for a couple of reasons. I think, you know, one, uh, first and foremost, we've heard 
many different voices talking about police training over the past six years since the Ferguson uprising as a potential area uh, that needs to be addressed within the broader conversation around policing and police violence. Um, and, you know, while there's been a host of research that's been conducted on various trainings, very little of that research has shown the efficacy of particular training programs in actually addressing police violence. So um, there have been a host of studies that have looked into implicit bias training, for example, and have found that implicit bias training may change officer attitudes um, and beliefs in how they respond to basic surveys, but doesn't actually change the behavior of officers in the field uh, and the likelihood that they'll use force. Um, there was a recent study that was done by uh, professors at Columbia University, uh, which looked at mental health training uh, and found that there was no evidence that mental health training uh, for law enforcement reduced the likelihood that police would use force, or particularly deadly force, uh, including deadly force against folks who have mental health issues. Um, there was a study that looked into procedural justice training, uh, which is essentially a training that teaches police to treat civilians like human beings and uh, explain their actions as they're doing it and not sort of uh, adopt this very aggressive, I don't need to explain myself to you posture. Uh, that training, there was some evidence that that training may have reduced use of force by about 6% in Chicago, although that study itself, uh, there are a number of intervening variables you can imagine because that study was actually conducted um, during the time period uh, that the police murdered McQuan McDonald and the video came out. Um, so that was a huge intervening factor that um, may complicate the results of that research. So I think the bottom line is there's very little that we actually know about whether training can actually move the needle on reducing police violence in the first place, and if so, which trainings in particular could actually be effective. What we do know is that you know nationwide, according to the Police Executive Research Forum, uh, the average police recruit gets about 58 hours of firearms training, so learning how to shoot. Uh, and of course, you're learning how to shoot at people, um, and only eight hours of training in de-escalation or uh, mental health and crisis intervention. So I think when you look at that picture, clearly the resources that are being spent on police training are not being spent in the right places, but where to spend those resources instead is sort of an open question in terms of whether training of any sort can actually be effective or whether all of that money just needs to be reinvested um, in something completely different and completely outside of policing in the first place. The only thing I'll say is that uh, what is unfortunate about uh, Representative Deming's comments is that uh, the conversation has not really shifted at all since 2014 in the way that she has talked about solutions. That that was something people said in 2014. And, you know, we didn't have high hopes for it, but we thought that it might actually turn into something. And like, like Sam said, didn't really turn into much. And every other problem that we attack in public life there's an acknowledgement that if the structures don't change, the outcomes will. So when we think about having amazing teachers, we're not like, you know what, let's just train them better. We're like, training can be a part of it, but we need to make sure that like the kids have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, the buildings have to be right, parents have to have the resources they need, the textbooks have to be good, there has to be accountability for teachers, like it's the whole gamut, right? Hospitals. It's not like just make sure that doctors have better training. It is like accountability. It is conditions for people in hospital. You know, we talk about the rate at which black mothers are dying in hospitals. It isn't just a matter of training them better. We, we even on the pod talked about like 
what it means to structurally set up hospitals so they experience different doctors, that there's accountability when the outcomes are bad. Like in every other part of public life, it is clear that the structure has to change at the root. And it's really odd that with the police, people in power, even on our side, will talk about everything but the structure. They're like, you know what? We need to make sure that the police are nicer. And you're like, well, okay. And then they're like, we need to make sure that the police um, go to more workshops. And you're like, okay. Now, what about firing police? I don't know. What about suing police? Yeah, what is that? What about, you know, convicting police of crimes? Up, oh, can't you? Like, every time you talk about a structural thing with the police, people veer you off into some community policing thing or try and convince you about training. And it's really odd to me. And I just want to name that, like, it is only the police that people refuse to engage, even engage the tough conversation about the structure. So when we think about Kenosha, Kenosha matters to us because in Kenosha, uh, where you know the latest shooting happened of Mr. Blake, uh, the Kenosha Police Union has a police officer bill of rights. The contract has a police officer bill of rights. Who told the press that he had a gun in the car? It was the Kenosha Police Union is leaking stuff. It is not the police department. It is not the official investigators. Who is leading a smear campaign against Mr. Blake and his family? It is the Kenosha Police Union, right? So when we think about Kenosha, we think about structural issues. In Kenosha, there is a five-person board of police and fire commissioners that can terminate the police chief tomorrow. They are who people should be calling. These are structural issues. That board is 100% appointed by the mayor, and so is the police chief. That does not sound like oversight to me. So, like, when we think about the police, it has to be structural. Training is not proven to be something to change the outcomes. And even if it did, it would never be the biggest lever. So my news is about Iowa, where after historic turnout in the primary election all the way back in June, in large part by absentee voting, people were able to vote by mail, the Republicans passed a law that actually makes it harder for people uh, to vote absentee. Uh, and in response, uh, many folks at the county level, the county election supervisors or election commissioners in Iowa, particularly in Democratic areas, have been trying to make it easier for people to vote absentee uh, despite the law. And so what that means is that currently in Iowa, uh, in order to vote absentee, you have to fill out this long form uh, where you put in all of your identifying information, this application. You also have to put in your voter identification number, which is a number that like nobody knows offhand. And then you have to send that application in, that then gets approved, and then that request means that you then get an absentee ballot in the mail that you can then vote with. Now, at the county level, what some election commissioners have been doing in Iowa uh, to make it a little bit easier is to send people a pre-filled out form that they just have to sign and send back. So they pre-fill out your voter identification number, they pre-fill out your name and date of birth and other information, they send you that in the mail, you just sign it, send it back, then you receive your absentee ballot once that's approved. So fast forward to this past week where the courts have issued an initial ruling in Iowa, putting a, a preliminary injunction on that method of uh, sending out absentee ballots to make it easier for people. And what that means is for about 50,000 people who've already received and sent back their pre-filled out absentee ballot requests, uh, that those are now considered null and void as per this decision. Uh, and now people have to receive another form in the mail 
to sort of correct for the error that was made in the first one in order to be able to then vote absentee and get their ballot in the mail. So this is sort of an ongoing uh, litigation fight in Iowa. Uh, Iowa, as you know, is a battleground state, um, and it is just one example of many, many, many different ways in which uh, Republicans and, uh, and the courts um, have stepped in, in many cases, to actually make it harder for people to vote to strike down or uh, limit the effectiveness of efforts at the local level to make it easier and lift some of those restrictions. Um, this is an ongoing legal battle, though, and so we're hopeful that uh, that this decision will ultimately get uh, get overturned and that this process will be able to be easier for people to vote in Iowa uh, come November. My real worry about all of this absentee ballot conversation is that people are confused about when and whether or not and how and why um, and all of those kinds of questions around absentee ballots. I think that people don't know whether absentee ballots will arrive in time or be returned in time to count, uh, whether they can fill it out and take it in some places. There's just a lot of confusion and I think these kinds of rulings just make people even more confused about what to do and what not to do about absentee ballots. We've also just seen shenanigans. And I think that we somebody needs to do a public relations campaign that helps people answer the question, like, when should I use an absentee ballot? What's the process? How do I ensure that it gets in effectively? Because I think that in fact, there is a disinformation campaign and a misinformation campaign and these activist courts that are doing all kinds of things. And And at the end of the day, I think people need clarity on the absentee ballots so that they don't have to imperil themselves by going out to vote if they are worried about COVID concerns. And that is real. We saw that in Wisconsin earlier and in a number of places. And so my hope is that with all of this conversation about absentee ballots, that we can get to some clarity for people so that it's quick and easy and people understand what and how to use absentee ballots best. One of the things that I think is really fascinating about this, and Sam, thanks for bringing this, is that I didn't know what was happening with absentee ballots until I was sort of thinking through this. I didn't realize that in Ohio, that Ohio's primary had more discarded ballots and a higher percentage of discarded ballots in any statewide election in at least the past four years. So more than 21,000 votes that were cast in the April primary didn't count because of things like late mail delivery, uh, mistakes on them. And when you think about uh, what might happen in the rest of the pandemic, Ohio threw out about one in every 100 absentee ballots, which is sort of wild, right? Because Ohio is a state that really matters. In the grand scheme of the Electoral College, Ohio is a state where uh, 21,000 votes could actually be pretty big. You know, we think about the landscape is that in 2016, Trump won Wisconsin by 27,000 votes and Michigan by fewer than 11,000 votes. So like 21,000 votes being uh, not counted in this year's April primary in a place like Ohio is pretty wild. The other thing is that you probably didn't know, I didn't know that in North Carolina, the Republican Party is actually sending out absentee ballot request forms to voters that have Trump's face on them. And it literally in big font says, are you going to let the Democrats silence you? Followed by act now to stand with President Trump. Like they are, that has to be illegal, wrong, everything. 
And especially for a person who said he doesn't believe in mail-in voting, they're sending absentee ballots, essentially trying to persuade people to, if you vote absentee, vote for the vote for him. Like, that is wild. And I didn't really, I thought that this might have been a hoax until... I Googled it and saw it myself. And I'm like, they really are sending out these ads to people attached with the absentee request form. So I just want to bring that here. That is wild. You know, we do not have this election in the bag. We need to fight like H-E double hockey sticks every day to make sure we get over because I do not know if we'll survive another four years. So my news is about the history of curfews. So I was really interested in it. I've always been interested in curfews because Baltimore has historically had a youth curfew law. And I've just thought that was interesting. Like I didn't... You know, I've always been curious about where these laws around curfews originated and the curfew conversation reemerged because of the protests. So you think about cities like Portland, you know, I definitely remember from Ferguson uh, in St. Louis City when we were out in the street, they put in these curfews. The first night I ever got tear gas in 2014 was actually uh, because of a curfew. It was a midnight curfew. And then they said that it really was eight o'clock and then we got tear gas. And there's this fascinating article in the Washington Post by Chris Petrella, who is great, um, and he uh, works at the Center for Anti-Racism, and he's a great thinker. I came across this uh, because he charts the history back to slavery. As you can imagine, almost everything that is an institution in this country is in some way rooted in the exploitation of black people uh, or indigenous communities. And I didn't know about curfew. So what we learn... And what he notes is that some people start the race-based use of curfews with the Watts riots. Like, that is where sort of they place this. And he's like, no, no, when you do more research, you realize it goes much further. So he highlights it in this book, New England Bound, Slavery and Colonization in Early America, that Wendy Warren, she cites in 1690, the colony of Connecticut passed the first curfew law forbidding Negroes from being away from, quote, the place to which they do belong, end quote, without a written pass from their owner. And that law authorized any English inhabitant to apprehend the black person, like to take them in their custody, which deputized every single white person to reinforce the racial hierarchy. 1690. He also notes in 1703 that Rhode Island's General Assembly passed a similar law uh, that restricted the movement of black people and Native Americans. And it stated, and I quote, if any Negroes or Indians, either freemen, servants or slaves do walk in the street of the town of Newport or any other town in this colony after nine of the clock of night, without certificate from their masters or some English person of said family with or some lawful excuse for the same, that it shall be lawful for any person to take them up and deliver them to a constable. And I'm like, wow, right? I just, I really did not know the racial history of these practices. Now, I am slow to participate in this idea that like, you know, things that started out bad will always be bad because I think that logic sometimes, you know, we we quickly see that logic extended to people. And when that's extended to people, it normally harms black and brown and poor people because people use that logic to say, well, the group poor will always be group in the hood will always be. So like that, I don't like that logic. What's interesting to me about this is that it is a reminder that instead of actually doing the work of justice and doing the work of equity, we want to force people to stay in their houses instead of actually like, you know, fixing public safety so that people don't need to come out in the street instead of ending poverty, instead of fixing health care, you want to 
force people in this moment to go home, to like stay at home and to use the police force to make sure they stay at home instead of doing what's right in the first place. And when we think about the racial history of this, it is like, you know, we obviously understand um, sundown towns, but thinking about in 16 and the 1600s and 1700s, this idea of restricting black people from being able to move freely was also a political move to ensure that you always knew where they were. That means that they couldn't organize. That means that they couldn't build community. That means that they couldn't build families and keep familial relationships. Curfews have always been a political project. That the act of putting in a curfew is rooted in controlling who gets to build community and for what ends. This curfew issue is really interesting, the history of curfews. I came to, like you, DeRay, the issue of curfews through my living in Washington, D.C., where there have been a number of curfews, youth curfews in place. And I thought this article was interesting in sharing the history because, you know, I wonder if the judges who are meeting out these punishments or who are instituting these curfews know the history. And I wonder if they did know the history, would it actually make a difference? Um, They strike me as wildly un-American, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm not exactly sure how the liberty and pursuit of happiness things play out when you are restricting people's movements. But, oh, of course, this traces back to control of and restrictions over Black people, Indigenous people, young people, etc., I mean, we're in a situation right now where we can't make people stay at home. In fact, there are people all over this country um, standing up to say it's their right to not wear a mask or it's their right to go out and be amongst people in crowds and whatnot. And they are standing on patriotism and, and they're standing on, you know, their right to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And so I don't understand why curfews uh, for some people are okay and not for all people. We're seeing this play out, I think, on the streets every night with protests. And I think folks are going to have to try to come up with other ways uh, to manage this. And I think that, I mean, I know for sure that curfews aren't effective, and I'm not particularly sure that we need to keep moving with these things. So one of the things that's interesting about curfew uh, arrests in particular is that they are highly variable year over year. So uh, in 2018, for example, there were about 17,000 arrests made, reported nationwide uh, for what they call curfew and loitering violations. Uh, these tend to be enforced uh, almost exclusively against kids. Um, so uh, youth in particular tend to be arrested for curfew violations, especially uh, black youth. And so one of the other things that's also interesting when you dive into the numbers is that there are particular places that arrest people for curfew violations much more often than other places. And that Philadelphia, Philadelphia Police Department is actually responsible for one in every four curfew arrests nationwide, which is like a random fact. Um, But when you look at the data, you can start to see sort of where the problem is most acute. Uh, And when you do a deeper dive into the data for Philadelphia Police Department, uh, and this is actually an analysis that was done uh, by ABC News in June, uh, what they found was that 
during the three-year period from 2016 through 2018, 2018 being the latest year that we have nationwide data, um, that every single one of those curfew arrests in Philadelphia was uh, somebody who was under the age of 18, so a, a child. Uh, and 85% of those curfew arrests were black youth in particular. This is obviously a problem nationwide. It's particularly a problem in the context of protests uh, where, so in the first few weeks of uh, the most recent sort of wave of protests after the police murder of George Floyd, there were about 10,000 arrests made nationwide that were reported um, in the context of the protests. A lot of those were for curfew and loitering uh, violations, which the police allege. Uh, and what that means is that could, that could easily um, increase the number of curfew arrests nationwide by about 50%, just given uh, the circumstances of, of those arrests, which is interesting. Um, in 2014 and 15, by contrast, there were between 30 and 45,000 uh, curfew arrests each year. Um, so curfew arrests overall have gone down. They tend to spike uh, in the context of uh, protests and the police making arrests for no reason other than uh, a curfew that they've decided to impose, um, and that those arrests target uh, black and brown people, especially black youth, almost exclusively. Y'all, my news for this week is a vulture piece. Uh, it's titled, A New Book Shows Why Black Artists Drive the Culture Visually. And I chose this piece of news to share because I really was inspired by an acceptance speech that Chadwick Bosman gave during some of, you know, one of the numerous awards that Black Panther won. And he talked about being young, gifted, and black. And what he said was, to be young, gifted, and black, we all know what it's like to be told that there is not a place for you to be featured. Yet you are young, gifted, and black. We know what it's like to be told that there's not a screen for you to be featured on, a stage for you to be featured on. We know what it's like to be the tail and not the head. We know what it's like to be beneath and not above. And I just thought his take on this quote and his experience in this mantra of being young, gifted, and black was so compelling to me. I think it also is just so interesting and also so moving that this was also a quote of Lorraine Hansberry, who's a famous, famous, um, brilliant black playwright who actually died of pancreatic cancer at 34. So just to lose these incredibly talented people, losing them, but also understanding their artistry and the beauty of black artistry and the importance of both historical and present black artistry is just so important. And so that's why I chose this vulture piece because it covers a new book that's coming out, an art book essentially, and it's called Young, Gifted, and Black, is edited by Antoine Sargent, who's this incredible writer and critic. If you don't follow him, you should. The book is based upon the collection of Bernard Lumpkin, who's an art collector and has his own fascinating story about why he collects um, and what his participation in the art world actually means. Um, and so within the book, there's actually a conversation between Antoine and Bernard, um, and some of that conversation is highlighted in this vulture piece. And I just think it's particularly interesting because I think art is such an important vehicle in terms of us understanding who we are. And so I think in moments like this and moments of great loss and moments of you know political and social uprising, our artists are so important. And so I think this book will do an incredible job, I, I, I suspect, but also inspire us to do some of this research um, and understanding um, and supporting of black artists on our own. But this book will highlight essays from curators, collectors, writers, 
artists like Rasheed Johnson, Carrie James Marshall, Micheline Thomas. I think the other interesting thing is something Bernard Lumpkin pointed to and really explains his, his purpose as a collector. Quoting him, my purpose with the collection has always been to sort of tell a story. These voices that help me answer questions that I've always had about race, about family, about what it means to be American, and about what it means to be black. And then take that story to a wider audience. And so I think as we're thinking about black artistry as we're in, in using it as a tool and a resource to understand who we are, to understand what these moments mean, to find inspiration, as difficult as it may be in these moments, and so just wanted to share that with y'all. I hope you check out the piece. Also check out the book that is to come in September. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi, it's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. Netta and Netta, 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 let us know what's going on with the current state of the protests and what's happening around policing. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's me, Netta. Thanks for tuning back in this week. Let's get into it. So I've actually been on the go all weekend. I went to Baltimore to go spend time with some family and some friends. So shout out to all of them. Uh, Spent some time with my good friend Portia and her son Emerson and her parents, Mr. and Mrs. Wood. I saw my good friend Nakia and her husband Jason and my little buddy Asher, who I haven't seen since he was two. Also got to connect with my friend Ryan, who I've mentioned on the show before is one of the organizers from Louisville who found his way to St. Louis during Ferguson October in 2014. And since we all met, we all just really clicked and the synergy was there and our work has been connected. Our cities have been connected via protest ever since. So it was really good to see people that I love and who I know love me. This week in the news, so much went down. So let's discuss. A New Jersey teen says she received a $2,500 bill from her local police for overtime. According to the Associated Press, 18-year-old Emily Gill received a letter from her mayor requesting the money for, quote, the police overtime caused by your protest. Emily's protest, which took place on July 25th in Inglewood Cliffs, called out the city for not taking action on affordable housing. The city's mayor said Emily was wrong to link affordable housing to her protest and said an invoice was sent to the organizer for police overtime since it would be unfair to require our residents to financially support a private event. Four Democratic members of the city council said the mayor owed Emily an apology and sought to cancel the bill. Y'all, this is rarely used, but not new, and it's not a new tactic to silence dissent. We've seen protesters arrested and hit with trumped up charges and now protesting a fundamental constitutional right comes at a premium in certain states. As disturbing as this is, it's definitely a sign that the other side is getting desperate. No matter what defenders of the status quo throw at us, we're not stopping. Also, the mayor is just simply wrong. Black lives cannot matter if affordable housing is not available to black people. So kudos to Emily for seeing the big picture. And the best part, just two days after this story sought national attention, the mayor rescinded the ridiculous invoice. This is also why it's important to bear witness. When we let them brutalize and mistreat us in the dark, they win. When we raise our voices, sometimes they can be shamed into backing down. As the saying goes, sunlight is the best disinfectant, and we've got a lot of cleaning to do. Like I've said on this show before, the LZ household is a voting household, and the importance of local elections was sadly on display in my home state of Missouri last week. Let me set the stage because this is almost too absurd for words. The state's governor, Mike Parson, brought lawmakers back to the Capitol for a special session on crime. The goal was legislation that penalized individuals who illegally use firearms and passed them to children to avoid detection. That sounds sensible, right? 
Parsons, a member of the Republican Party, got the exact opposite from the GOP-controlled House. According to the Associated Press, the state House voted to scrap the law, only making it a felony if someone gives a firearm to a minor to avoid arrest. And the rationale for this change? So grandparents or other family members can take the children shooting. What? (laughs) State House Democrats say this makes it easier, not harder, for children to play with guns and removes parental consent. The bill still needs another vote before heading to the Senate. And that wasn't all the political foolishness that came from Missouri this week. Another bill moving through the state house would allow police and first responders to live outside of city limits. Supporters of the measure say it will help with recruiters. Opponents say it should be left to individual cities to decide. Without getting too into the weeds, not mandating that police live in communities they police is a terrible idea. There's much to be said about community policing, but not having to live in the community that you're sworn to protect and serve helps breed an us-versus-them environment. It also allows those dollars for salaries to leave the city. In other words, St. Louis would be subsidizing the suburbs. With all that's been going on in the news and the videos of people's traumatic or even final moments readily available on social media or television, I've been thinking a lot about death. I made my peace with death six years ago, long before I became a protester. My mother's passing when I was just 24 changed my entire life, and I wanted to go be with my mother so badly, and sometimes I really do still feel that way. My sister, who was 13 at the time, was the only reason I was okay with living. When the protest began, I remember not feeling fear when it came to possibly dying once I finally told a reporter my full name and not my Twitter name, which was a different name at the time. And what's in a name? Giving the press my full name meant that murder-minded white racists could fuck with me. It meant opening the door for police to follow me home from protests across municipalities to the county where I lived in St. Louis. It's an intimidation tactic, but it's also an opportunity to affirm my own personal beliefs about death. I've spoken before about the conversation I had with the universe the night I saw Mike's blood on Canfield Drive, with the blood illuminated by the streetlight. That conversation with God, that quiet conversation with my mother and with the universe was a total acceptance of what my fate might be if I continue on the streets every day. Why and in what world should a 25-year-old young woman have a conversation with herself like that? I was ready for it because having experienced so much loss, losing my life in service of something that I believed in felt like a logical next step. The tragedy in Kenosha, Wisconsin, the murder of two comrades and the injury of another at the hands of a teenage vigilante bring all these early conversations crashing back to the forefront of my mind. What does it mean when people are leaving their homes with the expectations of expressing their First Amendment rights and a white supremacist 17-year-old murders them and then walks towards police with their hands up, weapon in plain view, and they drive right past him? It is another affirmation of the policing's long, detailed, and documented entanglement with racism and white supremacy, the protection of property, and the suppression of dissent particularly that in service of black liberation, simply cannot be separated from police and policing. They continue to show us whose side they're on, and we should believe them. In closing, I'm going to close with one more final thought. 
if anything ever does happen to me, don't make me a hashtag. Do not have a convention in my name. Keep the same energy of those early days of the Ferguson uprisings for me. Thanks so much. See you all next week. Bye. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France, which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mer and mer somehow being different words. Tubi, it's more popular than being French. See you in there. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Now, I met Kim at a, a couple conferences, and we just stayed in touch, and she is uniquely sort of situated in the legal world because she's one of the most effective international human rights attorneys in the world. She got her start in Afghanistan and now applies what she learned overseas to representing activists and victims of policing and the carceral state in Wisconsin and all over. Here's our conversation. Kimberly, thanks so much for joining us today on Party of the People. Yeah, thank you for having me, DeRay. I'm really happy to be here. Now, we've met in a couple different spaces over the years, and I've always been interested in the way uh, you started to practice law and your work abroad. Can you talk about uh, why you became a lawyer and then the types of cases that you did? And I know we'll end around your work on policing, but can you explain some of the work that you've done internationally and how you got there? Well, basically, I'm a Milwaukee, Wisconsin native. I've been an attorney since 2003, and I started as a criminal defense attorney in the public defender's office in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I did that for about five years, mainly representing people for criminal defense issues, felonies, misdemeanors, juveniles, and things like that. A lot of trial experience. In 2008, I was hired to go to Afghanistan to be one of a handful of attorneys to help build and support the Afghan legal system and build the, essentially, the criminal defense bar there. Criminal defense work is relatively a new concept, and in 2007, there was a law in Afghanistan that was enacted called the Advocates Law, which is essentially the law that governs criminal defense attorneys. And so I was sent there to train attorneys, to mentor attorneys, and also to work within the Afghanistan Ministry of Justice to sort of create the foundational structure for building a legal aid program. Um, And it was really interesting for me because at the time I had only really been practicing when I went to Afghanistan for a little over five years. 
Um, I had never traveled outside the United States. It was my first time traveling abroad, which was really interesting. And I was pushed into this new international world of legal assistance, essentially. So that program was actually funded by the U.S. Department of State. And so I did that for about a year, and I found that the program really wasn't helping Afghan attorneys to become better attorneys or to better represent people. And so as a means of me trying to understand the legal system there, what I decided to do for my own self-education is I traveled around the country and I visited prisons all around Afghanistan. And I just started talking to people that were locked up and listening to their stories what their experience was in court, how they didn't have an attorney representing them, how they were tortured into writing confessions, how they just were tortured within the system, how they weren't allowed to speak in court, just basic due process rights being violated, due process rights that people are entitled to in Afghanistan. And that sort of got me thinking, well, how can I better help the system? And also in visiting the different prisons, I was surprised to meet a lot of foreigners that were locked up, people from the U.S., the U.K., Australia, all around the world, who were English-speaking foreigners who were locked away in Afghan prisons, who didn't have a lawyer, who often their embassies weren't doing anything to help them, the companies that they were working for weren't really involved in their cases, and many of them had been locked up for years and didn't even know what happened in court, because everything in court was in a different language. So based on me missing going to court myself, based on the fact that I didn't really believe in the program that I was working in, in training and mentoring Afghan defense attorneys, and also recognizing the real need that people had for an attorney to represent them properly or better within the Afghan courts, I decided to quit my job. And so I, in 2009, I just started representing people within the Afghan legal system, litigating in the courts. And I became the first, and I believe still only foreigner, to litigate within the Afghan legal system. A lot of my work has been representing companies, you know, that were in Afghanistan. It was, it was a real big learning curve. Um, when we go to a country like Afghanistan, essentially we're building a city. So with that city, you have to think about everything that comes along with that. So there's roads, there's telecommunications, there's building structures, where all those tangible things need to be built by somebody or some entity. And usually it's an international company. What I was finding is a lot of these international companies, they wanted an attorney in Afghanistan, but they didn't have an attorney and they didn't trust the attorneys that were there. So me practicing there provided them with the opportunity to have a lawyer within Afghanistan to represent them on whatever their business interests were. So I started representing international companies. And then the embassies that were there, they were coming into legal trouble for a wide variety of things, you know, some employment things and other sort of high intense confidential matters that diplomats and diplomatic missions run into, and they didn't have a local lawyer, and they wanted one. And so they felt comfortable with me representing them. And so I then started representing ambassadors and embassies, anything from, I represent like UK, French, German, Italian, UAE, EU, all these embassies and ambassadors for whatever legal issues they had in Afghanistan. And then another set of clients were essentially foreigners that were locked up for criminal matters, as well as locals, anything from theft to murder, started representing them in court, um, which was a huge population of people as well. And then based on all those different types of representation of the wide variety of clients, 
you know, people that couldn't afford an attorney would contact me, um, mostly women, for essentially human rights issues. You know, women going to prison that were raped, that were being charged with adultery. And I felt like I had a responsibility to represent them. So I started representing women for what they term as moral crimes cases. You know, women that are being imprisoned for being rape victims and being charged with adultery. Women who were imprisoned for leaving their home without their husband's permission. And they were being charged with running away, which was completely illegal. Um, representing, you know, men and women for religious persecution cases. You know, people that weren't Muslim that were being persecuted for being of a different faith, which isn't illegal in Afghanistan. That type of work with the human rights cases, that seemed to resonate the most with the media. And so that type of work received a lot of attention from different media outlets, from the CNN, BBC, New York Times, wherever. Those types of cases were the most cases that were reported on. And based on the results, which, you know, I was getting really good results from my clients, getting them out of prison, you know, helping them with navigating the legal system, other people in other countries started seeing this, and they started reaching out to me to represent them on a wide variety of matters. So I, you know, had, for instance, Anwar Ibrahim, the former Deputy Prime Minister of Malaysia, reached out for me to represent him, so I represented him. I had um, people in Bolivia reached out to a doctor and wanted me to represent her for allegedly, you know, giving a false statement while she was trying to protect a child who was sexually assaulted, representing LGBTQ clients in Uganda, you know, representing Aaron Trey and footballers, even representing clients also in America for a wide variety of things on immigration matters where their rights were being violated. And so that's sort of how my practice sort of has blown up. And now what I do is I represent people all around the world in local courts, and I like to litigate within those courts. And that, for me, is my way of furthering rule of law. It's my way of fighting systems from the inside out, and I believe that's the most impactful way for me to essentially protect people's rights and to change systems so that they are protecting everyone, especially the most disenfranchised and vulnerable populations. That's fascinating. You know, I didn't. I knew nothing about the Afghan legal system until we met and talked. Uh, how did you get to a police case right now? How did you even get to this? Well, it's interesting because the police case that I'm involved in in Milwaukee, the clients that I'm representing are Alvin Cole's family. And Alvin Cole's a 17-year-old black kid who was at a mall in Milwaukee and essentially was shot and killed outside the mall by a police officer. And so in February of this year, the family reached out to me and wanted me to represent them um, with regards to his case. They had read about my work internationally. You know, I still do work in the U.S. I pick and choose, but I had done some criminal cases in Milwaukee. And so they reached out and wanted me to represent them. And for me, I feel like my main sort of focus legally is representing people for human rights violations. And I do strongly feel that a lot of cases involving police brutality and police shootings excessively, especially, are human rights issues that need to be addressed and should be addressed more widely and should be addressed in the same vein that I'm addressing, for instance, representing a woman that's been raped, that's charged with adultery. And so based on my experience and based on my um, affinity to my hometown of Milwaukee, 
I decided that I would represent the clients. And so that's how I got involved in the police shooting case. What are either you asking for as the lawyer representing the family? What are the protesters asking for? Like, what should we know about this case? Uh, and why did you take it? Essentially, what, what the public needs to know about this case is I actually represent three families. I represent the families of Alvin Cole, who's 17 years old, the families of Jay Anderson, who was 25 years old, and the family of Antonio Gonzalez, who was 29 years old when he was killed. And these three males of color were all killed by the same police officer within a five-year time period. That officer is Officer Joseph Mensa. This officer has only been a police officer with the Wauwatosa Police Department, which is essentially a suburb of Milwaukee. And basically, within the last five years, this officer has fired 19 shots, killed three males of color, and he's never been prosecuted. He's never been reprimanded. He's never had any accountability for his excessive use of force. And so that, I think, is an important point to highlight with the public that despite this officer's propensity to shoot and kill males of color under the guise of this is in my objectively reasonable standard, I believe that my life was in danger, that this police department continues to protect him. He is the only officer that has killed anybody within the last seven years in the Wauwatosa Police Department. Every time this officer kills somebody, he's placed on administrative leave while they do investigations. So essentially, Officer Joseph Mensa has only been on the streets for four years. And in that four years, he's killed three males of color. You know, and I didn't know that when I took the case with Alvin Cole in February of this year. It's something that we learned two months ago once the district attorney's office released his name. And so Alvin Cole's investigation is still pending. We have conducted our own independent investigation. I have personally talked to witnesses. I personally, you know, looked at reports, looked at all the reports, looked at all the video footage. And I think there's a lot of questionable behavior by Officer Menson. And I do strongly believe that he should be charged with some level of homicide with regards to Alvin Cole, Jay Anderson, and Antonio Gonzalez. Is there anything that you've learned in the process of representing these families that has been surprising to you? There definitely has been quite a bit that I've learned in representing these families. And I'll say one thing that has been really interesting to me based on my experience in Afghanistan and coming back home to see how police really police the community. What I saw in Afghanistan were military soldiers that are fighting in a war zone. They're fighting in conflict zones. And it's interesting that I see some of the behaviors of police, particularly Officer Mensa, within the Wauwatosa community, the way that they're armed, the way that they behave. Every incident that he has been involved in, with Antonio Gonzalez, he fired eight shots. Jay Anderson, he fired five shots. And Alvin Cole, he fired six shots. In my opinion, with all three of those situations, he never renders eight. He never provides any type of medical assistance to the three men, to the three males of color. Alvin was a kid. And that is what I see in a conflict zone in Afghanistan. They never provide any medical aid to the enemy. I believe that he very much views people as targets, at least these three males as targets, as opposed to looking at them as members of the community. This is similar to what I've seen in Afghanistan. And so... I think that has been a really interesting and a big learning experience for me. 
In addition to that, I'm so surprised at how the police departments are protecting him, even at their own risk to their own reputation. It's really interesting how different statements by police officers have changed throughout this investigation. His statement has changed um, throughout this investigation. For instance, with Alvin Cole, all five shots to him, Alvin was on the ground. The first two shots, he was on his hands and knees. The last three shots to Alvin Cole, he was face down on the ground. So therefore, there's no threat at that point in time. I find it very interesting that DAs have been able to use the argument that the weapon shoots very fast in so many cases, you know, because obviously with these cases, I've taken a deep dive at looking at other similar situated cases. And that's how I see soldiers behave in a war zone, you know, where they just fire their weapon without thinking how many times they're allowed to shoot their weapon. But I believe that officers, no matter how fast their weapons fire and why they get the benefit of, frankly, qualified immunity, is how they should behave in situations is they're supposed to shoot, assess, shoot, assess, not unload your weapon to the back of somebody or to the front of somebody or what have you. That's why you're supposed to go through all this training and experience that officers routinely tout as, you know, what gives them the benefit of qualified immunity and, you know, about how very um, dangerous their jobs and which, which their jobs have a certain level of danger. But I think that has been really, really interesting to learn. And in addition to that, it's been interesting to learn how much of an outlier Officer Joseph Mensa is by firing 19 shots within a five-year time period. I mean, the vast majority of law enforcement officers in this country never fire their weapon in a line of duty, and they certainly never kill one person, let alone three people. So I think that has been really interesting, learning the stats of law enforcement officers in the United States and also seeing how very militarized the law enforcement department within Wauwatosa, which is a community of only 49,000 people, that's 21 square miles long, that is, by and large, a it's not a poor community, how very militarized this community has become in their policing standards. Now, when you say you are shocked at how much the police are protecting uh, this officer, is that the contract that's protecting them? Is that, like, how is he being protected structurally? Well, there's a couple things. And I think in order to understand sort of how the police are protecting him, it's important for the audience to understand how Milwaukee is which is where I'm from. Now, these three males of color are all from Milwaukee. Milwaukee is the number one most segregated city in America. It's also been said to be the most segregated city and also the most polarized place in America. In addition to that, 53206, which is a zip code in Milwaukee, incarcerates more black men than any other zip code in the United States. Wisconsin is a state, and largely because of Milwaukee, is a state that incarcerates more black men than any other state. And even though Milwaukee is the most segregated city, it's also, frankly, one of the most diversified cities. I mean, it's very diverse, ethnically diverse city, which I think is really interesting, but it's super segregated. So this is a community that I grew up in, this community that I'm very familiar with. Now, what makes me surprised about the police and how they are structurally protecting this officer with regards to these cases is, in my opinion, the police in Milwaukee have always been biased. They've always targeted black people. That's been my experience of myself, of my clients, of family members, friends, et cetera. 
But what's interesting is seeing how much they've been targeting the protests in terms of illegally surveying them while they've been protesting on behalf of my clients. It's been interesting, for instance, how we've put in open records requests to ask for things like Officer Joseph Mensa's personnel files. We found out how the Wauwatosa Police Department officers, how they would have these Martin Luther King parties, which were very racially derogatory parties back in the late 80s, early 90s, and how these were hosted by Wauwatosa police officers, and they would just be super racist at these parties. And how we've asked for those documents because they've suspended 13 officers back in the day on these parties, but they're not willing to give that information. Because some of those officers that were posting the parties or were participants in those parties are the same police officers that trained Officer Joseph Mensa. So we put in quite a bit of open records requests, and we've received a bill of $5,400 that needs to be paid in advance, and that getting those records would take at least four months for them to give it to us. And they put that in writing, which I'm basically like, you just open yourself up to another lawsuit. Because frankly, for many of the records that we have requested, other people have requested in the past, and they've received those records for free. And it's absolutely ridiculous. You know, it's interesting how, for instance, this past weekend, there was an incident at Officer Joseph Mensa's home, where protesters were protesting outside his house, and that's currently under investigation. Officer Mensa, he put out a statement saying that he was shot at in his house several times by a weapon, how he was somewhat passive, and, you know, just giving out this narrative of how he's a complete victim in all this, and he doesn't really understand what happened. But there's a lot of video footage out there. There's a lot of eyewitness accounts that are out there. And one of the eyewitnesses who came out was a state representative, David Bowen, who is an African-American state representative of Wisconsin. He put out a written statement about what he witnessed, including the fact that there were not multiple rounds fired in Officer Joseph Mensa's house and that Officer Mensa actually grabbed one of the weapons of the protesters, and he's the one that pulled the trigger, Officer Mensa, not the protester. And once his statement was out, the Wauwatosa Police Department decided, while they have an ongoing investigation, to write a written statement themselves saying, essentially, this state representative is lying. That's what they actually put that out into the public view. They've never contacted the state representative. They've never, you know, tried to understand what his account is on what he viewed as an eyewitness. By them doing that, they essentially, in my opinion, are trying to intimidate him as a witness and, frankly, any other witnesses that may potentially come forward. It's disgusting, in my opinion, that we're seeing all this structural and, frankly, it's not even implicit racism anymore. It's just outright racism in plain sight and bias and how they're handling this police investigation and, frankly, how they handle investigations involving law enforcement officers. Now, what do we know about the Police and Fire Commission? Because they seem like the supervising body, right? Or, or no? They are. So, basically, we have two things going on with all three of these cases. So, we fired a complaint with the Fire and Police Commission asking that we have three goals with our cases. The first goal is that Officer Joseph Mensah should be prosecuted. He should be charged with some level of homicide. The second goal is that Officer Joseph Mensa should be fired from his job and should never be a police officer for Wauwatosa or, frankly, any other police district. And the third demand is that all 
Well, with the police officers, of which they have 92 police officers, should be required to wear body cameras, which is something that their chief, Chief Weber, has always, in my opinion, fought against. And that resolution very recently was approved, and hopefully, as they said, within the next six months, all Wauwatosa police officers will have to wear body cameras. Now, with regards to the Fire and Police Commission, we have filed a citizen complaint against Officer Mensa so that he can be fired. That's something that's open, it's pending, and we're supposed to have a hearing on it at some point. But based on the responses we've received back with regards to our open records, who knows when that's going to be. The president of the Police and Fire Commission was a former Wauwatosa police officer, and he was a police officer during the time of the Martin Luther King parties. I don't know if he was involved in those parties. I don't know if he hosted those parties, but I do think that there are some concerns as to his objectivity with regards to being the president of the Fire Police Commission, who is ultimately going to be the presiding body over whether or not Officer Joseph Mensa should be fired. So I think that's very concerning. Also, the Police and Fire Commission, it's an all-white body, and Wauwatosa as a city is known to be extremely conservative. It's a city where over 86% of the residents are white and less than 8% of the residents are black. But however, with the most recent data that we have uncovered, we know that, for instance, in 2017, that 71% of the traffic stops in Wauwatosa were of black people. And so that's sort of concerning to us in that I don't believe that Wauwatosa values black and brown people, their lives, as much as they may value those that aren't black and brown. So I think that's concerning, and I think that could trickle down with the Police and Fire Commission. And so because they don't necessarily want to completely deal with this, what they have done is they've hired a third-party investigator who was a former U.S. attorney, former prosecutor, and so he's the one that's handling the investigation on their behalf, which is unprecedented when dealing with these types of situations for Wauwatosa. Now, there's been a conversation about federal troops coming into town. Uh, what's your take on that? Well, my take is, you know, obviously that's a horrible idea. You know, it would just simply add gasoline to the fire. Um, based on what happened at Officer Mensa's home this past Saturday, it's been a very toxic environment. The police have doubled down to say that essentially they support Officer Mensa, who, by the way, a few weeks ago was suspended by the Fire and Police Commission, So, but he's suspended with pay. So he's just essentially sitting at home. They've doubled down in protecting him. The police chief has been doing multiple media interviews, basically saying that, again, this state representative is not being truthful. In my opinion, he's tarnishing the investigation that they really shouldn't have anything to do with. Um, they're targeting protesters. They've arrested two people yesterday. And it's really, really concerning that on top of that, they want to possibly bring in federal troops and that there's a, an elected official who is pushing for that to happen. It is wild that he is the only officer who's killed and still uh, he has not been disciplined in any substantive way and being put on uh, suspension with pay is just so nuts. Can you go over the circumstances of these three incidents too, just so everybody's really clear about what happened? And I do think it's important to let the audience know and full disclosure that he's, he's black himself. 
justice officer. He's one of the few black officers on this police force. With regards to Antonio Gonzalez, Antonio Gonzalez was killed on July 15, 2015. This is after Joseph Mensa was on the force for only seven months. Antonio Gonzalez is part of the LGBTQ community. He's a Latinx young man. And according to reports, when the officers came to the scene at his house, he's mentally ill and he had a decorative sword that he was holding. The officers claimed that he was coming after them. There were two officers there, Officer Mensa and Officer Jeffrey Newman, who's now deceased. And both officers claimed that he did come after them with the sword. Officer Newman fired his weapon one time. Officer Mensa fired his weapon eight times. Officer Newman provided medical aid to Antonio Gonzalez. Officer Mensa did not. On August 22nd, on 2016, Officer Mensa was given a Medal of Valor for killing Antonio Gonzalez. So the second person is Jay Anderson. Jay Anderson occurred on June 23rd, 2016. It was about 3 a.m. Jay Anderson was in his car asleep. Officer Mensa woke him up. He came on the passenger side of Jay Anderson's car. And when he came on that side, you see in the video that Jay Anderson had his hands up, although the video isn't super great. In the video, you see that Jay Anderson is kind of nodding off and his hands are like slowly coming down two times. And on the third time, Officer Mensa fires his weapon into the car six times. Now, he claims that there was a gun on Jay Anderson's passenger seat. What's important to know is that the only reason we have any footage is because Officer Mensa turned on his SWAT camera after he killed Jay Anderson. So what happens is, is that when you turn on your squad cam, it goes back the previous 30 seconds. But that first 30 seconds, there's no audio. So you don't know what's being said. You see both of them talking to each other. And frankly, Jay Anderson has complied with Officer Mensa's commands. You know, when he came to the car, he asked him to pull down his window. So Jay Anderson had turned on his car. He had to push the button to roll down his window. Obviously, Officer Mensa told Jay Anderson to raise his hands up, which he did. But you don't really know what's said because in that first 30 seconds, there's no audio. So the only reports of what's said is based on what Officer Mensa is saying, what the conversation was about. Within that whole interchange with each other, Officer Mensa then fired his weapon six times into the car, never rendered any aid, never gave any assistance, and again, excessive use of force in my opinion. Two months after he killed Jay Anderson, and while he was currently under investigation for killing Jay Anderson, he gets an award for killing Antonio Gonzalez the year prior. Now, Alvin Cole is a 17-year-old kid who on February 2nd this year went to the mall, Mayfair Mall, in Wauwatosa. It's the mall that sort of connects, essentially, Milwaukee and Wauwatosa. A lot of people frequent it. Within the mall, there was a verbal argument. Alvin was with a bunch of his teenage friends. He leaves the mall. When he leaves the mall, the police come to the back of the mall, and then they start chasing him. Alvin Cole and all his teenage friends are running from the police. And at one point, they've run about a third of a mile. Alvin Cole, you know, he has cops saying, throw your weapon, you know, throw your gun, fucking get down. So Alvin Cole, we believe, and the district attorney agrees with us, 
that he was trying to get rid of his weapon. While he's doing that, his weapon discharges and he shoots himself. Officer Mensa never sees the weapon. He never sees the gun. He has no idea where that first shot is fired. There is no clip in the weapon, which means there's only that one round that's in the gun. And Alvin Cole falls to his knees. He is closer to two other cops. He's facing these two other cops. Mensa is in his rear. While Alvin Cole is on his hands and knees, Officer Mensa, 10 seconds after the first shot, comes running from behind Alvin, and he shoots him two times in the back, two times in the side. The first two shots, Alvin Cole is on his hands and knees, and the last three shots, he's face down on the ground. Officer Mensa claims that Alvin Cole, while he's on his hands and knees, was pointing his weapon from behind him at Officer Mensa. But keep in mind, who points an empty gun? His gun was empty, and he was on his hands and knees. It's an absurd story, but that's what he's saying has happened. And so that case is currently being investigated by the DA, and we are pushing for him to be charged with some type of homicide. And I think if you look at these three situations and look at the totality of the situations and look at the experience of this particular officer in shooting his weapon, those are things that have to be taken in consideration with each of these cases in determining charging decisions. And homicide has no statute of limitations. So right now, we are currently pushing for prosecution on Alvin Cole's case. We have just officially asked and told the DA that we want him to reopen Jay Anderson's file so that he can be criminally charged, and we will probably reopen Antonio Gonzalez's file as well. Now, that's with regards to criminal liability. Now, with regards to trying to get Officer Mensa fired, we have filed a police citizen complaint to get him fired on the basis of Jay Anderson's case, Alvin Cole's case, and Antonio Gonzalez's case. But we're focused first on Jay Anderson's case, only because Alvin Cole's case is currently still open, but we're trying to get him fired based on that, and we're requesting to get different documents to us on the basis of those cases. I know it's a lot of moving parts. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pods of the People, and we can't wait to have you back. Thank you, Duray, and thank you for everything that you guys are doing. I really appreciate it. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pods of the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. 
Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.